0: Welcome to the Tech Ed podcast, where we visit with leaders who are shaping, innovating, and disrupting technical education. People who are not afraid to think differently, not afraid to try something new, all with the goal of securing the American dream for the next generation of STEM and workforce talent. What is it like to lead an eight- billion dollar company. That's right, 8 billion with a B. A company in a huge variety of markets from defense to fire and emergency commercial vehicles, access equipment. Today we are going to learn the answer. As we talk innovation in the world of manufacturing, electrification in the world of transportation, and advanced manufacturing talent in a world where there is not enough skilled talent to go around. My guest today runs one of the most recognizable businesses in the United States of America. So at this point, it is my pleasure to welcome John Pfeiffer to the TechEd podcast. John is the president and CEO of Oshkosh Corporation. And John, thank you so much for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to spend some time with you today, Matt. Now, Oshkosh Corporation is a huge company. You're in a wide variety of markets, you're in defense, you're in fire, emergency, commercial vehicles, access equipment, and your production contracts can span multiple years and reach hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. Now, at the same time, at that scale, adaptability and flexibility, those are becoming the tenets of success in manufacturing and in business. So some might say that your job as president and CEO of Oshkosh Corporation is to steer a freighter through an obstacle course meant for a speedboat. What are some of the challenges of being agile and responsive to ever-changing markets, given the size and scale of your company and its unique customer relationships?
1: It's a really interesting question. I like the analogy of the speedboat. We're a big company. We're $8 billion in annual revenue. We subscribe to the philosophy of, you know, you could say adapt or die, or we like to say innovate or die. Right, because we're constantly innovating for our customers. If we don't do that, we won't be number one in the end markets that we serve. What I'll tell you is, is that you know what really drives us. I'll give you kind of a high level and then break it down. What drives us is our purpose. You know, we're a company with a really palpable purpose. We're here to make a difference in people's lives. And when I say that, I'm talking about the difference in people's lives in terms of people that are in our communities every day doing the most difficult work. It is soldiers, it is firefighters, it is people working at great height, it is people working in environmental services. And and that's a unifying purpose that really unites us and brings us together. And we know that as we execute to deliver productivity and to deliver safety to those incredible people that we serve, that really drives us. You mentioned that we're a relatively large company. We've got 14,000 team members, nearly 150 facilities in a couple of dozen countries. We serve about a dozen end markets. So we're serving defense vehicles, fire and emergency, we're airport vehicles, we're aerial work platforms, we're environmental services, and I could go on. So when you look at that enterprise, we are uniquely positioned to really excel at serving the people that are working in those industries. And we adapt based on that. So we're set up to adapt and react and be delivering innovations to those people business by business. And I think that that ability to be so focused on those people in our communities that need us to innovate for them is what allows us to continue to innovate and allows us to adapt and and, and allows us to be a successful business. We leverage the strength of each other through technology. So the technology we develop in defense, whether it's electrification or autonomy, we're able to take that and we're able to apply it to those diverse end markets that gives us an added advantage as to who we are and how we deliver for the users of our equipment.
0: And I think the key word there really was making sure that you're focused on what's important to driving the organization forward. When we think about 150 facilities, we think about 12 different end markets that you're involved in, obviously a huge scope from a manufacturing standpoint. And I want to talk a little bit about the whole idea of supply chain constraints. It seems like that issue comes up in every single manufacturing conversation, material shortages, constraints in transportation, You know, We even hear from manufacturers who are telling us that they have the product sitting on the dock ready to ship to customers, but they can't get a hold of shipping pallets, and so they can't ship the product. It's just an incredible world that we're living in. What do you think we're learning from some of the current bottlenecks across the supply chain around the globe, and how will these lessons change American manufacturing in the future? It's really
1: interesting what we're going through. Any company that manufactures anything is seeing these supply chain disruptions. And I think most of us would say it's the toughest environment we've ever been in in terms of managing the overall end-to-end supply chain. Now, the good thing is, is we've got really, really healthy order rates. We've actually got an all-time record backlog in our company right now. So we've got a lot of demand. We see a really nice growth trajectory going forward. And I think what we've seen as we've come out of the pandemic, the pandemic kind of threw everyone into a pause in 2020. And then as the pandemic has subsided, and I realize we've got the Delta variant coming back, as it's subsided, everything has surged and order rates have surged again. And so whenever you take a very complex supply chain and you slow it down rapidly and then try to restart it rapidly, you're gonna have a lot of difficulty in the restart. I think that's kind of the high level View of what's going on. So, you know, the reality is we're learning that we're really only as strong as our weakest link. And we're also learning that we've really got to make investments to make it easier for our supply chain to be able to support us. And when I say that, managing your supply chain starts from product development. We need to do more across standardization and commonization across our product portfolios, because the more commonization we do for our suppliers, the easier it is for them to be able to supply us efficiently and effectively versus having a very complex uh, bill of materials, for example, or a totally different bill of materials from one product to the next. Another thing that we're learning, we do not see in the supply chain disruption that we've had that there's any correlation between supply chain disruption and proximity from our operations. So in other words, what I'm saying is some of our best suppliers are halfway around the world and most reliable, and some of our least reliable are very close to us. It also goes to say some of our best suppliers are very close to us and some unreliable suppliers are around the world. I mean, it goes both ways. So you can't just have this simplistic notion that we're going to insource everything to America and it's going to solve all of our problems. I'm sorry, that's not going to solve all of our problems. We have a mentality that we can help our suppliers by positioning our uh, portfolio to make it easier for them to be a supplier to us through some of the things that I mentioned, and by uh, making sure that we're allowing our suppliers enough visibility where they can invest to keep pace with our growth curve. In the interim short-term period of time, of course, we're doing a lot of work with getting our engineering teams involved to make engineering changes, uh, commonizing microchips, for example. Instead of buying 50 different microchips, we commonize on just a few to make it a lot easier for a chip manufacturer to supply us in the short term and alleviate that one supply chain constraint that almost everybody has today. So we are learning a lot, but I really think that being effective with supply chain starts right from the time you design the original product and how you design.
0: Absolutely. So designing for manufacturability is is obviously key and also making it easier to be a supplier as it sounds like your supply chain is going to remain global. We do hear some people saying that the latest disruptions in the supply chain that we've seen over the course of COVID could drive manufacturing closer to the point of consumption. It sounds like in your case, It's maintaining a global supply chain and continuing to have a focus on how do you create suppliers that are best in class, regardless of where they are and where they exist in the world.
1: Hey, we're an American manufacturer, but we also manufacture in China. We manufacture in different parts of the world. Most of our heaviest manufacturing is in the United States. We've got a great supply chain in the United States, but you have to go with the best global supply chain that you can get if you really want to be the best in your industry. And you can't just say I'm going to insource everything. There isn't enough capacity in America for everybody to insource everything. Right, got. we don't have enough people yeah. now, right? You don't have enough people, you don't have enough plant capacity. You've got to look at things from a global supply chain perspective, and that's good for America.
0: Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And it's, it'll be interesting to see how this all rolls out as we move into the future. It's going to be an exciting future, both for manufacturing and for Oshkosh Corporation, as you continue to innovate your manufacturing methods i want to talk a little bit about that innovation we discussed earlier about your mantra innovate or die and i think that's a, that's a great way of looking at how you advance your company and earlier this summer you were notified that ashkash corporation won the contract to produce the us army's striker medium caliber weapon system you've noted that to achieve this win your team combined best in class capabilities for system design manufacturing and integration here at the Tech Guide podcast, we're absolutely fascinated by any innovations that are taking place in the world of manufacturing. And I'm curious, John, if you'd be willing to share whether there's any examples of how you're innovating around advanced manufacturing technologies at Oshkosh Corporation that our audience might be surprised by.
1: Let me tell you about that, that MCWS, medium caliber Weapon system. We commonly refer to it as the STRIKER program because it's a really interesting program. This is, by the way, a new category for Oshkosh Defense. Our defense team is really good. They're very agile. And so we're getting into these adjacent categories like the MCWS that we have not been in before. And when you look at the MCWS, what we're able to do is take a striker platform. We're able to bring our strengths together, our strength being a prime defense contractor. There's a lot that goes with that. But partner with others that have the capability to get us into those new categories, in this case, a medium combat weapon system, that being Pratt Miller, that being Raphael. We partnered with them. In today's world, sometimes you can't do everything in-house if you want to provide a technologically advanced product to your customer. You've got to have good partnerships. And I think that that capability that we showed in that partnership is why we were able to win that program. It's a great, great statement for our business. But so back to we're a prime contractor for the Department of Defense. I think one of the reasons we're a prime contractor for the Department of Defense is because we are considered an advanced manufacturer. We have a great track record with the Department of Defense for being on time and under budget on our programs. And that's because we know how to manage our operations. We do a lot with digital manufacturing, what you might call industry 4.0, constantly trying to innovate our own processes. We want smart plants, right? We don't want to have the disconnected plants. We're all aware of what a disconnected plant looks like. A plant manager walks in at 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning, and their biggest fear is, where is there a quality problem that I don't know about? Where is there an efficiency problem that I don't know about? Where is there a potential safety accident that I don't know about? Prior to now, you wouldn't know about something, in a quality spill, for example, until it happened. Now, with connecting our plants, we actually have wearable devices that our operators wear. Because one of our biggest incidents in any manufacturing operation of a safety accident is usually a back strain or a, or a slip and fall. So these wearables will allow operators to know audibly or with vibration when they're in a position that's putting them in a compromised position and might create a strain or a sprain. That's connecting the operator to help the operator be more efficient and more safe. We are using digital twins. We're using augmented reality for work instructions. Most manufacturers have the problem that their most skilled Most experienced uh, people in their operations are retiring and they're being replaced by a younger workforce. Well, the quicker you train and bring that younger workforce up to speed, the better off you are. So our ability to use augmented reality, to use 3D work instructions right on the machine allows us to train and develop an operator faster. We're able to use artificial intelligence to design quality checks into the process. So it used to be the old-fashioned way was everything was offline. You'd pull a product randomly offline and take it to the CMM room and do the quality checks. That's too cumbersome in today's world. You have to be able to do real-time in-process quality checks so that you know, in the worst case, at the point of impact when there is a quality issue, but in the best case, being able to predict when something might be coming out of calibration and adjust it before it's going to create bad quality. So we're just constantly connecting our manufacturing plants to make them better, more efficient, give plant managers real-time information when they need it so they can do something about it before it's already happened.
0: When you start thinking about some of the things, John, that you just started touching on, which is how do we then use all that data, use all that information that's available to us and apply artificial intelligence, apply machine learning, and be able to look into the future? Avoid that quality issue or that spill that you referenced before it ever even happens. I want to explore that use of data just a little more deeply. On your most recent earnings call, in response to a question from an analyst, you referred to Oshkosh Corporation as a, quote, innovation company, and you referenced electrification, autonomy, data. Let's talk a little more about that use of data in your business. By all accounts, we have access to more data than ever before. I just read an article in Forbes that said we'll create more data in the next three years than we did in the last 30. And so all kinds of data about our customers, our suppliers, our manufacturing processes, our products. What is a fascinating example of how Oshkosh Corporation is leveraging data in your business operations?
1: Well, so as I talked about on the manufacturing side, you know we see things in the sense that everything has to be smart. And so when I say everything has to be smart it's everything has to be connected and has to be able to provide real time data so that we can provide more value for the customer or in the case of the manufacturing operation for the, for the people that work in the operation. So thinking about everything has to be smart we are doing everything we can to continue to build our advanced analytics capability. We have a great team of data scientists all the way up to the PhD level, and we really look at our products from a sense that the way that we use data going forward is how we're going to provide probably the greatest value to our customers in the future. I'll give you some examples of what I'm talking about. So Every time we produce a product today, we expect that it will be connected. So we'll be able to, or the fleet owner or the user of the equipment, we will be able to get real-time insights because they are working with a connected vehicle or a connected machine. So giving you an example in the fire and emergency segment. So in the fire and emergency segment, fire trucks are evolving to be as much communication vehicles as they are pumpers and aerial platforms for firefighters to work from. So when you think about the life or the job of a firefighter, an incredibly difficult job, what our vision is is to be able to deliver that firefighter in real-time, proactive insights about where they are going and what they are going to encounter, information that prior to now they never conceived that they would be able to have, about the layout of the building, about things that are happening real time in the building so that it gives them the ability to be safer and more productive when they are working. If you think about one of our concrete placement vehicles, when we use data on a concrete placement vehicle today, the fleet operator will know exactly the amount of mix that's in the drum, how long the drum has been mixing because there's a shelf life to it, how long that operator has to go until they deliver the concrete because it has to be delivered before it expires. They'll know when the pour starts, when the pour stops. The operator themselves that's operating the vehicle will get real-time artificial intelligence telling them what they need to do just before they realize they need to do it to make it easier to do their work. Everything that we do going forward has to be connected and we have to be using data so that we can provide huge step change in value that our customers derive from doing the work that they do and using our products when they do.
0: And I want to make sure that our audience caught what you said because I think it was really profound. You said, and I'm getting close. I may not be quoting you perfectly. The way we use data is how we are going to provide the greatest value to our customers in the future. Now, you know, when someone thinks about a, a company like Ashkash Corporation and they say, "Describe your products," they are going to say things like emergency vehicles, fire vehicles, defense equipment, commercial vehicles, access equipment. But really in the end, what you're saying is going forward in as much as that is the delivery method for what it is that you're going to market with, you're a data company and how you think about how your customers will use data in the future is going to be a huge driver for your organization. I hope I got that right. And I think that that really kind of shares and helps us think about really across the market and in so many different market spaces, how data is going to become increasingly important as companies innovate not just their you know, their hardware and not just their products themselves, but then what data is available to their customers as they're using those products. So just a fascinating response.
1: Every economy has to continue to drive productivity, right? Real productivity is what drives a real wage growth in an economy. And we all want real wage growth. So we all need real productivity gains. So the products that we provide do exceptional in terms of the value that they create traditionally for our customers. As we go forward and we say, we want to drive much bigger value for our customers, meaning that the people using the product can be far more productive and more safe than they've ever been before. That's what data is going to allow us to do. The next frontier of value creation for us is data-driven.
0: And data will... Well, without question, drive productivity and safety in the future. It's going to be fascinating to watch. It's really an amazing time to be alive and to be watching the American and the global manufacturing landscape. You know, we, we've talked a little bit already about electrification. I know you mentioned that in your most recent earnings call. And in recent episodes of this podcast, we talked not too long ago to Peter Anderson. Um, of Cummins, vice president, responsible for both the supply chain and manufacturing for Cummins. Not too long ago, we were joined by uh, Chris Trees of Mercury Marine. I know that's a company you know extremely well from your background, both with Brunswick and with Mercury. Chris shared with us how electrification is revolutionizing transportation. Peter Anderson said exactly the same thing. Do you see the same types of trends in your business with regard to moving from internal combustion engines to electrification? And can you provide any examples for us?
1: Oh, yeah. Electrification is huge for us. You know, we've been in electrification for more than 20 years, doing actual electrified product programs. And you're hearing and seeing more about it today is because electrification technology and cost has come down to a point where now there's not just a sustainability benefit or a product performance benefit, there's also an economic benefit. And that's what's changed in the very recent past, just in the last or three years. For example, lithium-ion battery costs in the last 10 years have come down by 90%. Now the costs are in a position where you can actually provide an economic benefit as well as a product performance benefit, as well as a sustainability benefit. And that's why we're starting to see electrification so much. We've been involved in electrification for over 20 years. We have electrification programs happening in every one of our businesses. The U.S. Postal Contract, which is a gigantic contract that we won, we're doing all the last mile delivery vehicles for the United States Postal Fleet. We're going to upgrade the fleet, and in 10 years, the fleet will be electrified. So these are to start both internal combustion versions as well as zero emission battery electric versions. And over that 10-year contract, 100% of the units will be electrified, and you'll see a fully electrified U.S. postal fleet. We just introduced the world's first electric fire truck. Actually, in Madison, Wisconsin, been on hundreds and hundreds of real lifetime, real calls. Huge innovation for the fire and emergency market segment. In our access equipment segment, we've got aerial work platforms that are fully electric. They don't even have hydraulics on them fully electric. So huge product performance benefits and also an economic benefit because of the total cost of ownership that you get out of having an electric product versus having a product driven by hydraulics or a combustion engine. And we're, we've just put our first uh, refuse collection vehicles that are electrified into the market this year. So a lot happening, a lot to come in electrification for us. So we're, we're really excited about it and continuing to invest heavily in
0: one of the concepts we explore often on the TechEd podcast is this whole idea of what we call the exponential economy. And it's the way we explain it is products doubling in price performance every 12 to 18 months. And it's really been going on since the late 1800s. And you know, it's commonly called Moore's Law in terms of our ability to process information. Your example of lithium ion batteries coming down 90% in cost over the course of the last 10 years is just really a great example. And as that cost has come down, performance, I imagine, is increasing and improving as well which is a huge part of what's driving electrification. I just always like to outline that point when people bring it up because the exponential economy is alive and well in so many different spaces. And it's really what's driving innovation in so many different ways. I, I want to stay on this topic of electric vehicle technology, John, if we can, and talk a little bit about one of the challenges uh, related to electrification, which is limited battery life. I mentioned Chris Trees a moment ago. He suggested, and I really like this example that he said, he said, we can electrify a marine engine, but running it wide open would run the battery out in six to eight minutes. And who wants to have a, have a boat that uh, runs its battery out in that period of time? You recently announced a $25 million investment in MicroVast, which is a next generation battery technology company. Tell our audience about the nature of that investment and where do you see battery technology advancing in the coming years?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's certainly going to continue to evolve. We've got partnerships with lithium-ion battery companies, MicroVast being one of them, where we actually have an equity stake in the business, and we do development programs together with them for our product development programs that we're working on. So there's a lot to come, I think, in terms of advancement in battery technology to extend the range and the life of a battery. And I think that that will continue to evolve and needs to continue to evolve over the coming years. I think Chris Dries is absolutely correct. The marine industry is probably one of the tougher environments to apply today's lithium-ion battery to because of the duty cycle of a marine engine. With technology where it is today, there's plenty of applications that are ready to go electric. Refuse collection is one example. Refuse collection is an application where you depart and return to the same depot every day. So relatively easy to put the recharging infrastructure in. And you have trucks that are not moving at great speed through our communities, stopping and starting a lot. The stopping provides regenerative braking, which extends the life a truck can be out on a route. That would be considered to be a near-term opportunity for electrification. I think as you see the technology continue to evolve, Eventually, we'll get to a place where even a marine engine can be electrified and last long enough to satisfy the people that are using the product. So we're still in the infancy of how this technology is going to continue to develop.
0: So still in the infancy, and what an exciting future we can look forward to in the whole world of electrification, of electric battery technology, and we'll certainly be keeping our eye on that market without question. I want to come back for a moment to the U.S. Postal Service's next generation delivery vehicle. Earlier this summer, you announced that Spartanburg, South Carolina would be home to the operations for your production of this project. As a result, you will be creating 1,000 new manufacturing jobs in Spartanburg. Creating jobs is amazing. We've already talked today about the challenges of finding a skilled workforce. How will you and others ensure a pipeline of skilled talent to fill these new roles in South Carolina?
1: So, that's a great question. And it's something that we're always paying attention to, no matter if it's a big new operation in Spartanburg, South Carolina, or one of our existing operations. You know, talent attraction is critical to being able to be successful. We like to be really early and we like to be proactive with how we develop and recruit people to come into our company. You know, we like people to understand what is our purpose all about because we think our purpose attracts people. Hey, we're a technology company as much as a manufacturing company. We do, you know, leading technology in autonomy, in electrification, in data telematics and other systems. People like to work in those environments. People also like to work for companies that have that strong purpose. But when I say we like to attract people early, We have programs where we bring in high school students. We bring in high school interns. It could be college-bound high school students. It could be high school students that aren't sure whether or not they're college-bound. Or it could be high school students that think, hey, maybe I'm not college-bound. I need to see what manufacturing is all about. And we give them the opportunity to work in an advanced manufacturing environment and see the different career opportunities that they might have. Available to them, whether it's in a vocational skill set or whether it's going into engineering or some other degree program. And that allows us to really help attract people when they're at a young age to want to come and work for Oshkosh Corporation. We'll do the same types of things down in Spartanburg. We're a very much a community focused company. We like to be active in the communities where we operate. We like to give back to the communities that we operate in. That helps us attract a lot of people as well. So we'll do those things to pull people into into our company and make ourselves an attractive place to be.
0: So attracting people early, literally as early as high school and to hear the term high school intern, that sounds like a really, really cool opportunity for somebody of high school age to get some exposure to not just manufacturing and advanced manufacturing, which is awesome, but some of these emerging technologies, telematics, artificial intelligence, electrification, some of these things that we've already talked about already. So getting at students early, letting them know how amazing careers in manufacturing can be, making sure you maintain that community focus regardless of the community in which you're doing business so people recognize that you're not just investing in yourself and your company, you're investing in them, you're investing in the communities in which we live and in which they live. You know, as we think back maybe 20 years ago, John, and, and a lot of us, I remember sitting in CEO meetings 20 years ago where, you know, you'd bring in a speaker or a resource specialist and they talk about this coming football through the garden hose, people retiring from the world of manufacturing, needing to backfill all those positions. In as much as, you know, we all are feeling the effects of the talent shortage in the workforce today, some of these things could have been and were predicted 20 years ago. You know, looking back and learning from those 20 years, what should we have done 20 years ago that would have helped us avoid the current shortage of skilled talent?
1: Well, I think, you know, what should we have done? I'll say what we as communities or country maybe could have focused more on is really being more proactive with students when they're in high school and really giving them more of a a real understanding of careers that are available and giving them an understanding of uh, manufacturing and skilled trades and careers that are available to people, other than just trying to push kids into colleges when that might not be the best option for every person out there. You know, we all know incredibly successful people who never went to college but went into skilled trades or some sort of vocation that are incredibly successful. There is so much you can do with it. And for some reason, we got into a point, I think, 20 some odd years ago or whenever it was, where we almost kind of made that seem like that was an unsuccessful route. That's not true at all. That's a very successful option for so many people to take and live an incredible life. And we somehow kind of downplayed it and made it seem that if you don't go to college, you're not really going to do anything with your life. And nothing could be further from the truth. So I think we need to really change the nature of manufacturing is not dirty, dark, and dangerous. Manufacturing is advanced technology. Manufacturing is a great career. Manufacturing is fascinating. It's what brings ideas to
0: life. And I think there's no better place to
1: have a career.
0: And I love the... The thinking around your whole idea of bringing ideas to life. And literally from, from the concept phase, from the idea phase, from the design phase, all the way through seeing the physical manifestation of your work, sitting on a shipping dock, going out to a customer, just an incredible way of looking at manufacturing and manufacturing careers, and especially for students who are in in high school and considering what might come next to make sure that those types of careers are on their radar. So we could have maybe seen this coming 20 years ago, and if we had it to do over, maybe do some things a little bit different. Looking forward 20 years from now, what problems are we facing today that we may wish 20 years from now we had addressed sooner, and what should we be doing about those problems now?
1: I think we need to be continuously more STEM-focused, science, technology, engineering, and math. I think that those are underrepresented fields, but those fields are very, very prosperous fields. Those fields uh, lead to so many interesting and prosperous careers, and that's where you really drive a lot of innovation and progress in an economy. I think we cannot overemphasize learning opportunities in STEM for the youth in our country. That's my opinion.
0: So if we're going to continue to have a vibrant economy, a successful economy, making sure that we're taking as many young people as possible, giving them exposure to and interest in STEM careers, obviously that'll be music to the ears of our listeners as well. And we couldn't agree with you more, John Pfeiffer, on that particular goal. And if we do that, we will avoid some problems 20 years down the road as we continue to live in a world that is innovating at at a pace that some of us have a hard time, probably most of us have a hard time keeping up with and in some ways even fathoming. So great advice there. One of the things we love asking our guests. And part of the reason for this is that we do have a number of students who tune into the Tech guide podcast to listen to people like yourself and get a better idea of what the career landscape looks like, about what the manufacturing landscape looks like, and really to help them create a pathway in their brain and in, and in their future toward exciting careers. So let's say for the moment that you were sitting down with a student who was a high school sophomore, what is one piece of advice that they should consider as they're thinking about their future?
1: Well, I think that, first of all, they have, anyone has to consider where their real interests lie.
0: You have to pick a career
1: that is in something that is intellectually interesting for you, and that's fundamentally most important. And then I think that you also have to take a perspective of what is the economics of making a specific career direction. I think that, in my opinion, there's too many young people today that choose what career they're going to go into without taking a view of what are the economics of going into that career. And that's always important to understand, Okay, if I choose this path, I have to be accepting of whatever economics might come from that career path. And I think that that gets overlooked too much so clearly i'm somebody who's a stem focused person i've got three kids two of them are engineers and one's a student in computer science so i've done my i've had had my influence on stem but i think following your interests is critical but also as you follow your interests understand what the economics of those interests might be
0: and on the topics of our kids, I've got one uh, biology major and one data science major. So uh, that message that you just shared has resonated with them as well. And they probably probably heard just a little bit of that at home as they were growing up too. So just fantastic advice there, John, as well. Number one is follow your interests. Nobody wants to find themselves in a career path that they don't find invigorating, that they don't find intellectually stimulating, but also make sure that there's a paycheck on the other end of that and that, uh, that you're considering the economics of the choice that you make. So phenomenal advice for our high school sophomores today and a phenomenal discussion on so many different topics that we've had with the president and CEO of Oshkosh Corporation, Mr. John Pfeiffer. We've talked about electrification. We've talked about advanced manufacturing. We covered how are we going to overcome manufacturing challenges here in the USA and, and around the globe as we talked about supply chain and also amazing innovations in manufacturing technology. So John, I just want to take a moment to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to spend some time with us and our audience here at the TechEd Podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you, Matt. Happy to talk with you today. I enjoyed it.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the TechEd Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe, leave a review, and if you like this episode, share it with a friend. New episodes launch every Tuesday, so listen in next week.